everybody. Welcome back to Radius of Reason. Um, my name is Andre. I am joined with my arch nemesis, Levon. Levon. Um, today we're going to be talking about urban planning, cities, and some of the general problems that I think everybody here in the United States experiences on a day-to-day basis in the communities they live in. Um, it's been a legacy I feel uh, driven by underinvestment, erroneous investment, and just general lack of consideration for what people need within urban spaces. Um, really, this topic I started thinking about uh, because a couple of weeks back I started reading about the water crisis in Jackson, Mississippi, where I think for about seven weeks now they haven't been able to access clean drinking water. Uh, they're still under boil orders, and the city government's encouraging people to take showers with their mouths closed because their water is so dirty. And really, it's kind of scary to think about because all of this talk of the United Wait, States. Wait, hold on. Who do people usually take showers with their mouths open? Like I do. Wide open? Yeah, you never like get it in there and like swish around. And <laughs> you kind of. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's like, I'm sure people pee in the shower too, right? Yeah, Man, I've heard of if I've, I've heard stories, <laughs> I've heard rumors. So we kind of wanted to break that down today and talk a little bit about mostly our feelings on the matter. Um, and and do, do you think it's good, though, to first touch on, you know, the fact that this issue is rarely talked about? Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned, you know, the... the what happened in Jackson, Mississippi kind of right. brought some of this to your attention. But in general, why do you think it's so rarely discussed? Yeah, I mean, I think poor urban planning is one of those things that's rarely discussed but frequently complained about. I mean, everybody probably has stories about getting pissed off because they're sitting in traffic too long or pissed off because the potholes in the city streets are messing up their car or pissed off because there's not enough public transit. I mean, this is something that impacts our lives, I'd say, fairly significantly. But yeah, you're right. Very seldomly is poor urban planning discussed as like a maybe a reason why a lot of these things are going wrong. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's a reflection on us, right? right? The kind of societies that we want to be uh, and embody. And yeah, I mean, we, you know, we're, if you, if you look at the, the media landscape right now, it's, you know, all culture war stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, how about we discuss something that's more concrete and the impacts can be very clearly felt because... You know, a lot of the sociological phenomenon that we discuss, it's so difficult to actually like, and when you're talking about policy and, and making changes and whatnot, like it's hard to like concretely measure things right. and whatnot. In urban planning, like, okay, this is like, you know, it's almost like the physics of like uh, social uh, settings, right? Where we can, we can actually measure things. We can really mm-hmm. like analyze things and, and, and measure the results in a concrete way. Right. Um, so, so maybe it would be a lot more fruitful to actually, you know, discuss these topics, focus more on them than, than the culture war stuff. Yeah. Of course is, is, is very, it's very interesting. It's very fascinating. <laughs> to but, which we actively contribute. But with it polarizes <laughs> us, you know, yeah. and something like this is actually something like maybe could have bipartisan support. Yeah. Right? Well, and maybe that's the issue too, is that this is sort of a unifying factor that I think most people would agree that they want to have cleaner streets in their cities. They want to have more accessible utilities, clean water. Those are things that are unifying factors. And you bring up a very interesting point that it seems that all politics are kind of grounded in federal politics, right? Even at the local level, when somebody's running for like state Senate, ultimately speaking, it's going to come down to if you're like a MAGA dude or if you're, you know, a lib, right? That That's really like the defining polarization that we have. And we've sort of stopped discussing maybe at the level of the elected official, hey, you know, what is this individual actually going to do for us within our immediate communities? And there is probably a conspiratorial way to think about it where, hey, this is done intentionally because um, it is an inherently divisive thing and it's keeping us separated. Or maybe it's just like not as sexy to talk about cleaning up your parks yeah, and stuff like that. maybe there's both going on. Yeah, I mean, there, there's, you know... It's not out of the realm of possibility that there are bad actors that want to drive the narratives in a certain direction. Yeah. Of course, that's always kind of been the case. 
But also, yeah, some of it is a reflection of human nature and the things that we prioritize, which aren't necessarily logical, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And 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 are the things, or, or maybe they were logical in the ancestral setting that mm-hmm. we evolved. But now <laughs> here we go. Now you know there's there's that mismatch. So um, let's talk about I guess the the biggest problems here with with urban planning. I, I think in in America it's safe to say that cars <laughs> are the biggest problem. So let's get rid of cars. That's easy done. No, well I mean. And it's probably important to note that before, like the mass adoption of the automobile, cities were kind of planned in a way that were a little bit more conducive towards human life, I guess. Um, Most American cities outside of like New York and Chicago, they had pretty advanced streetcar systems, interconnected uh, transit lines that helped you get from one side of the city to the other. I guess you could always ride your like donkey or something too. Um, but you know, there's a greater emphasis on pedestrians and walkability to cities. And we do still kind of witness remnants of that in places like New York and Chicago mm-hmm. that we might consider like the key cities for walkability or whatnot. But there was a very obvious shift that happened when, the automobile incident to mass production became a little bit more affordable for people to purchase where we sort of gutted our public transit systems and we started prioritizing spaces to park our cars, right? And we, all of us probably see it today to a certain extent where our cities outside of maybe a select few in North America or in the United States are very much kind of, um, exemplified by parking spaces, parking lots, garages. Could, could you say this was a conscious decision driven by lobbyists of the automobile yeah, industry, right? Yeah, right. And, and there is the whole like conspiracy that that I don't know how much of a conspiracy it actually is versus an actual like understood truth that there was a lobby by tire manufacturers and oil companies to sort of replace um mass public transit with privatized kind of automobile ownership and that did result in streetcar lines being gutted and, and um, buses coming through to replace them. And then that was eventually replaced by individual car, car ownership to a certain extent. And yeah, I mean, I, I, and, you know, another thing we, we don't think of this example as much when we talk, when we think about corporations mm-hmm. impacting politics and, 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 and all, and all the issues associated with that. But this is maybe the most egregious example. Yeah. Right. Right. It's like a, phys- a physical impact. shaping of our world. Yeah. And the daily impact that it has, right? The impact on our daily lives, I mean. Well, I mean, almost every facet of our life is directly impacted by the fact that we rely on cars as a single mode of transit in, in our communities. I mean, something as simple as, maybe not simple, let's call it as complex as how planning has evolved, right? There's this notion that when cities historically developed, right? Every city has like a historic downtown. Those tend to be areas that are more walkable because when you had public transit, cities evolved in more of like a circular pattern, right? Mm -hmm. They evolved in a way that um, were sort of organic to transit lines where you could take a bus or take a streetcar and then walk from station to station. When we started introducing automobiles into the equation, the development models kind of started elongating into more of a rectangular format where you could sort of drive from your house in the suburbs to the city center to work for and, whatever reason. And that has led to, you know, things like social isolation yeah. and, and the, the mental health impacts of that are now being more vividly felt in conjunction with other things like right. social media. I mean, all of these but, things that really we've talked yeah, about, it's all kind of, kind of linked together. Um, a few stats now that I found um, relating to cars uh, car, fat- Cars. car fatalities have killed far more Americans than all of our wars combined. What? So obviously there is the component of of just the danger of driving, and it doesn't really get talked about that much. But driving is actually pretty damn dangerous. Yeah, it is. Every time you get on the road, you never know. I mean, it's not just due to other drivers' incompetence. You know, it's, it's like your tire could blow out. Um, so you have all these things contributing to that uh, commuting by car ranks as people's least favorite regular activity, which we can all attest to for sure. Um, a 23 minute drive uh, or a commute has the same effect on happiness as a 19% reduction in income. 
So that's oddly specific. Yeah. So if it works the other way, then maybe you can move to a you know a more uh, walkable city. Uh, for every extra five minutes Atlanta residents drive each day, they are three percent more likely to be obese. Hmm. So you know, with the obesity pan- pandemic that we have, <laughs> you, you could say, um, you know, all these things again. It's like these. These decisions early on, um, or coercions by the by the corporate and by the corporate industries, um, these are the effects that are now, you know, the, these indirect second, third, fourth order consequences mm-hmm. are now showing up in very ugly ways. Um, so, you know, one, one one thing that I find very a very good illustration of the issue is like if if you travel to Europe, you know, I don't know any single person who's gone to Europe to a city like Barcelona, for example, and then said, you know, I wish it was more like Dallas, right? It's always like, I wish the city, you know, my city back home was more like this, you know, and, but I think it is kind of important to interject that when people tend to travel to Europe from the United States, they are going to Barcelona, Rome, Paris, Berlin, cities that do have developed transit networks. But Europe, to a certain extent, is still struggling with the same problems when you go to lesser-sized cities, right? There is still very much kind of an over-reliance on cars for transportation if your city doesn't immediately have an effective transit network. It's true, but they also do have still, like, you know, their historic centers tend to still be very walkable. That's true. And so... At least that's something, you know, again, a perfect solution here, like it's, I don't think any city has kind of like the perfect solution on transportation, Uh, but to at least have a walkable city center would be massive because, I mean, even some of the downtowns in, in the bigger cities here in the U.S., they still kind of suck. They're not. They're, 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 there's nothing interesting. There's no like nice. They don't have as many nice squares. They don't. Have, they don't have good focal points. You know what I mean? Like it, it. It's still very. I don't know. It just seems like a very like capitalistic. Uh, un. Um, I don't know. Just a very uncharming my, place. My boy went to New York once. No, he's. Just, <laughs> no, yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, I think it's also maybe Europe is spoiled by the fact that. They're generally speaking older civilizations, so their historic downtowns mm-hmm. were actually like designed and developed in the 1300s. Had no choice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah. we are kind of dealing with the perils of uh, modernity, I guess, to a certain extent. Where New York was always like a very new city, all things considered. I guess Europe did get bombed to shit during the war, so they had to kind of rebuild it. To yeah, um, I, I, I like this call out you had here um, around some of the kind of externalities that driving brings to, to cities, right? Specific kind of around pollution. And this is something that comes up from like a urban planning standpoint a lot where a lot of communities that had highways just like blasted right through them have higher rates of asthma because of all the CO2 that's released from the road systems. And I think that in itself is like a really kind of terrifying arrangement that we've brought upon ourselves with this over-reliance on cars is that because roadways have to be interconnected to to allow for cars to access cities, anybody who's living in an urban environment is just going to have to kind of come to certain terms with more negative health outcomes, which doesn't really do any wonders to increasing sort of the the drive for people to move into cities if you're kind of objectively going to be subjected to far like more pollution and things along those lines. Granted, I don't know if that's 100% limited to a frame of comparison to maybe cities historically where, you know, you have places like London that had tremendous amounts of smog from industry and whatnot. But even with like deindustrialization started happening in the US, you still have high rates of pollution because fucking car culture to a certain extent yeah yeah and the epa data kind of backs up what you're saying because the transportation sector is the biggest source of pollution the transportation sector yeah if you can imagine that um yeah and it's i mean i was just in my my homeland of of armenia and, and the air quality i love my country but the air quality was god awful in the city uh in the capital of yerevan um and it's just like, 
I mean, you know, cars, the, the technology uh, w with the emissions and the standards that, that are now set, it's clearly improving. But, you know, all it took down there was a few Soviet vehicles <laughs> from like the 1980s to like absolutely destroy uh, uh, your lungs. Which is interesting because Armenia, to a certain extent, did and still probably does have have a pretty advanced transit system, right? Because of the Soviet development model. So you have your your metro, and you have buses. Yeah, you know it's still very car centric. I mean, there are areas, uh, and I'm speaking about Yerevan exclusively, but there are areas where you can walk that that are very nice. But it still seems it seems incredibly car centric for a very old city, right? I mean, it, they they really went out of their way to to make some areas like the main square. Mm -hmm. There's there's so much traffic, and there's it's just it seems to me like it's inescapable. Like following the Western, um, mm, I don't know the Western uh, the transportation diet. <laughs> you could say. It, 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 it's kind of like Hollywood, right? Like all these other countries and cities around the world have, you know, obviously they, they've been so severely impacted by the same, um, I don't know. You could say maybe there was commercial benefits or, 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 I mean, why is it that other countries who maybe didn't have the same lobbying efforts? It sounds like you've identified a common denominator. Armenians, Armenians, Hollywood, a lot, a lot of, <laughs> No, but like, I mean, why is that the case? I mean, I guess I haven't really thought about it. Yeah. If it is the case that, you know, all this lobbying was, this, was the primary, you know, cause of, of the urban layouts that we have now, why, why do we see this? And why is it so prevalent in, in other countries and cities around the world? Maybe because it's kind of the dominant model, right? I mean, for all intents and purposes, I mean, right now, there are probably some difficulties with kind of the quote unquote status of the United States on the global stage. But after the end of the Cold War in the early 1990s, like the U.S. sort of became the model for all other countries to follow from an economic standpoint. So, to a certain extent, maybe it's just like after effects or where, you know, this is sort of the policy position that was adopted by the United States in the mid-century. And then as the United States grew to sort of more of like a unipolar status of world power, that's something that kind of trickled away and everybody sort of started following. So maybe it's more of like a marketing thing. Or like, right. Um, yeah, I mean, them being the example... But also, I think objectively speaking, it's probably cheaper to offset expenses on transit for onto individuals so they can take out, you know, massive loans for their cars as opposed to like investing resources from the standpoint of uh, policy, right? It's cheap. Like a government doesn't really have, I guess you still have to pay for parking and, and paving roads, but you don't have to like invest massive amounts of money to build you know, rail lines or dig tunnels for subways. You can kind of just like pass it all off onto the individual. Man, it's not like they're driving like Ferraris all over the world, right? Most of us have to deal with, I mean, whatever beater car you can buy on the on the cheap. Yeah, no, that makes. Sense. I mean, I, I would love an Armenian Lada, like a, a good old like. <laughs> um. Yeah. No, that's that's interesting. I think maybe some of this is also promoted by capitalistic, like the individualism promoted by capitalism, right? I guess. And so, right. The expansion of capitalism into into other cultures equates to individual ownership equate, equates to the kind of the car getting the car yeah which is interesting too because i mean how many people outright own their cars versus they're just buried in debt that, that they've taken on to finance it right which you know also kind of stabs individualism in the back but that might be more indicative of this current stage um, of capitalism we've entered into where you know everything is based on finance and ownership is a lot more expensive so you have the mortgage for the house that you don't own you have the loan for the car that you don't own but you're kind of selling this like image of um of individual ownership i blank i was afraid i was going <laughs> to set my laptop on fire yeah, with, the, with the candle so i mean we kind of talked about cars as a huge driving force for some of the problems we'll dig into a little bit um, around urban planning, community development. 
to kind of round out this conversation around the automobile, can you think of any solutions that we could take as maybe voters or taxpayers or potential policymakers that could really maybe decrease the impact that car-centric culture has on how we plan our communities? Yeah, yeah. I think first and foremost, I think you have to start simply developing areas in the city that are free of cars that attract kind of a walking culture Mm -hmm. and that can start to change people's minds. I think the first thing is like you need a cultural shift Mm -hmm. and then also, yeah, you can disincentivize driving, reducing parking. So that drives up the cost uh, (laughs) to to park somewhere or maybe they have to actually take that. Maybe they bike or they, they walk a little bit farther to get to, you know, where they need or They, they kind of, you just make it a hassle. God, that's going to lead to a meltdown of society. It's just just decrease parking spaces by 10% with no alternative provided. You just, you just get rid of it. Yeah. I I think it has to happen in tandem with a rollout of some other like policy, right? Where it's, you cut parking spots, but you also increase like bus routes to, mm-hmm. to and from certain areas. Um, and then revenue for, for, you know, public transportation, maybe you can generate that from increasing a gas tax. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Although I, I think that at least in, in the United States, cars are such an integral piece of American identity. People are going to continue driving them. Even if gas is like $7 a gallon. I mean, in, in, I was out in California at the start of really like the, 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 this sort of experience we're kind of, I think on the, on the other side of now with raising, rising gas prices. And I think gas was like $6 a gallon, which is insane. But I don't really know if California is like net decreasing their car ownership despite really, really high gas prices. Right. I guess they're driving fucking Teslas now, but that's, that's not a solution. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, this, like like you said, it has to be in tandem with other measures, right? That really incentivize walking, right? Um, so just like looking at one factor, like higher gas prices, you know, that's not really going to be, that's not going to do it um, with how critical driving is in our culture. Um, let me ask you this, just on a final note on 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 this car stuff. What would a city look like? kind of like your ideal city let's say you know a certain city in the u.s starts planning for the year 2100 where they're going to be like this utopian carless (laughs) what would that look like to you i mean look we're not going to completely get rid of cars no absolutely there's going to be there's still going to be some roads um and driving kind of on the periphery of the city is still going to exist, obviously. Well, and you still have to have roads for buses and everything. In for terms, buses, yeah. for emergency vehicles, for yeah. police, right? Right. Um, so what would that look like to you? I, I think a pretty simple objective to really shoot for is just to have it 100% walkable, where even if you do have roads, you just have enough pedestrian space that it exists where I could walk from one side of the city to the other. And that in itself would be a pretty easy win and a pretty easy solution to implement where you just don't have to have, like, and, and most cities, I guess, technically speaking are quote unquote walkable, but for the most part, you have to kind of lead, you know, I, I suggest everybody go on to like their, their GPS app of choice and kind of select walking directions. Like it's going to be able to take you to where you're trying to go, but you're going to have to like, crossover like patches of grass you know sidewalks are going to end sometimes you might have to jump over a highway or two and i think just making enough space for pedestrians to be able to get around in itself is going to be very fantastic well i guess you know it's walkable in the sense that you can walk from point a yes to point B. yeah you will not be and maybe you will be shot but i mean but but when we say walkable you know do we also mean like pleasant right to walk i think safe is first safe right where you have like an area developed exclusively for pedestrians that isn't going to be encroached on by by vehicles it's kind of this a lot of cities right now are passing policies to increase bike lanes right it's seen as like okay that bike lanes are going to bring increased bikers to the city and whatnot and yes maybe but most bike lanes are also not protected from moving traffic right they might intersect with like a right turn lane or something like that so yeah they exist but that doesn't mean they're going to be an effective resource for 
bikers to actually use to a certain extent. So I think, yeah, creating safe, a safe space, um, for, for walking is the, really the first step. And after that, everything else can kind of be introduced to a certain extent afterwards. But as long as you can walk somewhere, I think that already changes how you're going to think about planning as like a citizen, right? Because if you, have a walkable city, you're going to have more businesses. I think they're going to start popping up to accommodate for that. Right. There's going to be more people walking and we're drawn to, I mean, the reason we're drawn to cities is because there's a lot of people. Right. See like, like, you know, people watching is great. Right. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's almost like an activity. You go, you go for a walk and you know, you see a bunch of shit. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, it's necessary to have kind of the, the the safety component in place first, but yeah, I think ultimately, like, you want attractive places to walk. Right? Trees. Trees. You want trees. You want trees. A lot of green, green micro parks. Micro parks. Term that I came uh, came into contact with recently. How is it different from just a small park? I don't think it is. Oh, we just got to like, yeah, academia is going to well integrate into urban, limited urban spaces. I right. Guess. Yeah. So. We've talked about cars and we've talked about how cars have played a role into developing like the modern American city or community. Um, But there's a lot of other issues that kind of exist in and around uh, car ownership that might be partly caused by car ownership, might actually be stimulated by car ownership. But there are other things at play that impact a lot of... uh, maybe difficulties that cities face and that are consequences of poor urban planning outside of just making everything, um, sort of, uh, defined by, by car, car, car centric culture. Mm -hmm. And the first thing that I could really think of is like redlining policy of like the 1950s and sixties, right? This idea that, um, certain portions of the city will be reserved for people over certain skin color. Right. And, that in itself is partly driven by urban planning, but it's also driven by real estate policy that was actually kind of stimulated by the federal government. But objectively speaking, portions of American cities that had housing that was uh, insured and backed by federal government guarantees uh, were able to kind of restrict home ownership to, um, to white families. And, Portions of cities that were kind of neglected because of that resulted in in, um, large quantities of black, brown, Irish, and and Italian residents that sort of weren't protected by federal mortgages uh, because of sort of the thinking at the time. And as investments started pouring into, you know, certain communities versus others, you sort of have this artificial split between um, areas of cities that are more affluent, more kind of developed versus areas that are a little bit more neglected. And I I think that this is kind of a huge issue that a lot of communities face across America where there's just kind of this very blatant inequity, right? Where some places might be getting bike lanes, sidewalks, they might be getting a, a new streetcar system put in. Others are kind of just left by the wayside. And in essence, I think as long as there is this kind of inequitable, inequitable development in cities, you're never really going to have fully functioning, healthy, well-planned communities because there's just always going to be this imbalance to a certain extent. Um, yeah. Well, so <laughs> <clears throat> that kind of ties into single-family zoning as well, right? In in a sense that it, it it was originally kind of like almost a racist practice that emerged, but. What what do you think about ending single family zone? I mean, it, I, I think they probably have their place to a certain extent, and individuals who want to choose to live in those kinds of homes and, and communities, I think, should have that option. But I, I think, largely speaking, one of the greatest issues that cities face right now um, is density or a lack of density. Where again, maybe because of how car centric cities have become, maybe they have a lot more parking lots scattered around with, with less. Um, options for people to kind of find housing that that is close to something that they need to get to by foot. And I think ending single family zoning is actually a great way within urban areas to improve on like density is if somebody is going to come in and build over a parking lot, it has to be reserved for uh, multifamily units or 
commercial space as well. And single family zoning kind of is largely responsible for a lot of this like suburban sprawl that a lot of American cities experience. And, and that would, you know, naturally lead to, I think, you know, more businesses emerging yeah. and then all, all of a sudden it's more walkable. You don't have to drive 20 minutes to the grocery store. Right. 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 Exactly. And, and I think part of that reason is also this notion of, um, or which, which sort of led to this notion of food deserts popping up in cities, right? Where because, you know, grocery stores might be built around communities that are planned for single families where you can drive to grocery stores, but cities really don't have that kind of investment. You result in situations where people living in certain parts of a city just not having access to um, to produce or, or even just like sustainable sources of groceries they can go out and buy. You might be able to run to 7-Eleven and get, I don't know, what do they sell at 7-Eleven? Like fucking... Pokemon cards. They sell Pokemon cards. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, Pokemon cards and hot dogs. You know, they, you they did twenty years ago. You bought Pokemon cards at Seven Eleven twenty years ago. Not twenty. Yeah, twenty. Years yeah, tw- ago. it has been yeah. twenty. That's mm-hmm. when. Damn, I never thought about the that. The biggest scam on the planet. It's not a scam. It, th- those things were were hard. Oh, to actually, find. yeah, scarce. I had, you know, I had five hundred uh, Pokemon cards stolen from me. Oh wow! Elementary school. I had mine stolen from me too. Yeah. Yeah, dude, I would be rich by now. I would. Yeah, I wouldn't be doing this podcast to make a living. You know, you're making a living. Y'all getting paid? Oh no, my uh, Uh my stand's falling off. So a a solution to a lot of this inequitable access to food in a lot of communities has been this interesting concept of urban farming, where people take plots of maybe vacant land, their backyards, or maybe some community spaces to actually start growing vegetables and produce themselves i mean do you think that's kind of an effective path forward for for communities like you talked about the dream city of 2100 is that something that you would want to have in that kind of urban environment uh i I don't know if that's sustainable on an individual level uh and you know we we mentioned off mic the other day about how the soil is contaminated from the urban environment, <laughs> these heavy metals. Yeah. So it's not necessarily even safe to eat, mm-hmm. right? Arguably. Um, but I do think vertical farms near city centers are, I mean, within, you know, uh, an hour or two of dri- driving distance, something like that, to, to, to provide fresh, uh, you know, produce. To the city, to the citizens is uh, <laughs> the citizens. To the citizens is uh, yeah. I think that's going to have to be a vital thing. Um, yeah, well, I mean that technology still, you know, it, it's kind of in its infancy. Mm-hmm. I think as it develops, I think, um, I think it's going to really be the norm where you're not getting your food from, you know, Mexico, right, or from Venezuela. I mean, do they export it, food, Venezuelans. Yeah, do we, do we eat uh, Venezuelan strawberries? I don't know. I, I mean, it is really contingent, I think, on how like global supply chains hold up, right? Because if yeah, it is going to be very hard to import produce on like a globalized scale. Yeah, you might have to have like a source of production locally. But I imagine the solution isn't going to be to grow it on a plot of land in your backyard. That that's a very like Soviet late Soviet era policy of like, yeah, society is crumbling. I'm gonna have all my own veggies and stuff. Which, you know I mean some of that could be good. Don't don't get us wrong, right? Like that I mean, it would be nice to be able to do that, especially once, you know, cars have been severely reduced. Yeah. Right? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and you don't have that contamination problem. And it does seem like urban farming is very much like a a sign of a problem, more so than like a, an effective solution to anything, where if you did have well-planned communities with equitable access to, to grocery stores and produce, you wouldn't have to have people growing food in their backyard, unless they're doing it for, for fun or something. Um, but really it also kind of leads to a greater question of like how independent should urban centers even be right should they be self-sufficient in producing food maybe even energy right like if you have city kind of controlled or regulated solar panels and wind farms like i mean is that really an ultimate objective that we're shooting for as well it has to be i think i think you want you you want everything to be as much as you can localize, you want to, right? Um, and and that also feeds into kind of the next topic that we'll touch on. Um, 
which is having kind of more authentic cities that have their own unique charm, you know, to them. Uh, being able to have that independence from an energy standpoint, from mm. a uh, standpoint of like farming. I think, I mean, imagine that, right? Like you're getting produce that's like native there or maybe maybe genetic modification in the future is like very popular and like this city's like known for its genetic <laughs> this particular strain of you tomato know, <laughs> uh yeah uh, genetically modified uh you know some some tomato that looks like a i don't know something else i don't know but but like it can lead to kind of uh, unique cultures or cultural elements emerging within cities yeah and i think that is like a huge calling card of, of hit cities historically like when you go and visit I'm trying to think of a city that has something unique in it nowadays, but <laughs> it's tough. I mean, you, you go visit Rome, you know what you're getting, right? Like all this history, it's very touristy, but you know, you're, you're getting something that's supposedly unique uh, in terms of yeah, the, there is something you're getting in Rome that you're not going to be able to get in Austin, Texas. Right. And again, I think that's largely attributed to the fact that Rome is just a very, very old city. Right. But Newer cities that have only been around for maybe two or three hundred years. I mean, Austin isn't even three hundred years or two hundred years, really. Um, you're, you're just not going to have that like bedrock of kind of historic legacy to sort of rely on. But there is a reason people still go to Austin, right? There is. What do they have in Austin? They have music. They have music. Well, they have music everywhere. Ah, oh, right. dang, yeah. No, but Austin's kind of a nice blend of like Hispanic and, and, and European culture. And it has great food. You can get like really good, um, kind of. <laughs> well, it's almost like you know. It's funny you mentioned that. I mean, some of this I feel like is also, um, like the draws of certain cities seems to be like political. Like I want to be, you know, pe with people from my tribe, right. Right. Or lately that, you know, I want to live in a community that has abortion rights or, or right. So like there's it's yeah, the U.S. is kind of strange in that sense, like because it doesn't have that history, like the cities don't have the, that that prolonged history and, you know, they don't have the compelling historic, you know, city centers. Right. Um, yeah, I guess the next thing is like politics, politics, uh, obviously some, you know, the West Coast, you have. The weather, the geography there is very compelling. Um, Cities like Denver, you have you have the Rocky Mountains right, right there. So, so the there's outdoors. some of that, which is great. You know that that, that is a good kind of draw. But um, yeah, like if you look at a place like Rome, I mean the weather is not bad, but it's not like you know the place to go for the best weather. Right? <laughs> and it's not like there's you know huge beautiful national parks right nearby. So. What is the draw of Rome? Well, it is its culture and history. Right. Less so its culture now because it's very touristy. Well, I mean, you, there, you, there, there are less touristy parts of Rome, but you, you know what I mean. You still have the culture. Like Maybe it's a, something about like central Italian culture where you know you're going to be able to go and they're going to have cafes and terraces and you can sit there with your fucking cappuccino or whatever they drink there. That, that is definitely like a draw to, to, um, to Rome that maybe you wouldn't necessarily be able to find living in San Francisco. I, I do think that American cities still have some of that, you know, think about a place like new Orleans. And again, new Orleans has been around for a while too, but there is an authentic like city center. You can find, you can find certain culture that you wouldn't necessarily be able to get in other parts of the country, kind of the Creole Cajun sort of cuisine, the, musical heritage that the city has so we still have those things in the united states but maybe they've just been kind of oversaturated by this corporatized um sort of monolithic identity that's sort of come as a result again of of car culture to a certain extent it's fucking car culture man it's fucking cars but you know this there is opportunity there i think because lately especially as an adult um as i've been traveling and seeing a little bit more of the United States, you do kind of start seeing that there are distinct identities that might exist within various parts of the country. Um, a couple of years back, I went to Maine and you realize in Maine, they, they speak English a certain way. They eat a certain type of cuisine as influenced by the geography, right? Like they have a lot of, um, you know, the Maine lobster roll is kind of a, is a huge deal there, but they even have, you know, their own brands of soda that they just drink in Maine that 
aren't really present in other parts of the uh, country. And I think it's, it's places like that where you start realizing you could actually focus more on, hey, I'm going to go to this place to experience something unique and distinctly regional as opposed to whatever monoculture that you we know, have. It's interesting there. you mentioned Maine and you, maybe you're referring to like uh, Boston as kind of the centerpiece. Or sorry, Massachusetts. Sorry, no, that is that is different state. Yeah, Boston, Maine. Oops. Oops. Actually, I wonder. That's um, probably but but I mean, you could say Massive. You know, like okay, at least Boston has its own sort of culture, right? Yeah, sure. And so, okay, Maine is more like sprawled out, right? Sort of. Yeah. But I would think maybe the density of Boston could lend itself to its kind of more unique relatively speaking more unique culture sure and, and i think there is a notion of northeastern american identity versus mm-hmm. midwestern american identity or, or mountain identity um but yeah i mean you could i i think about things like have you seen those traditional travel posters from like the 1920s and 30s it was like very well designed kind of it feature maybe like a geographic landmark you know like oh like visit paris and they have like the eiffel tower or whatever but that's kind of an interesting model to think about. Like if you did have to sit down and draw out a poster for like your locality, what would you put on it? Like what would attract somebody to come and visit your community from somewhere else? Like make the decision to do that. And I think it comes down to, you know, your unique food, which is something that's varied by geography in the United States. Um, you need kind of cultural attractions, which again, you could find almost anywhere, like something that is uniquely authentic to Austin, Texas versus Boston. A lot of that, I think, has been warped and it's kind of suffered a little bit under this sort of universal um, corporatized identity that's kind of imposed on a lot of communities, but it's still there, definitely. That's, well, at least something's there. Something's there, yeah. But in every city, if you set aside maybe the authenticity of it, you will find a chipotle a panera a starbucks chipotle i'm okay with <laughs> yeah chipotle is good this is a chipotle starbucks podcast. we can probably get rid of starbucks i think we'll be fine keep the chipotle huh yeah now sticking with it with some of these areas of improvement that we've been discussing the data integration um, that we can have, you know, with smart roads, with traffic lights, with smart cars. Um, how, you know, we're talking about the problems today with the current urban layout and how car centric it is, but what about problems in the future where you integrate car centric cities with technology? Right. What kind of problems could we have then? Well, yeah. I mean, I think there's probably some benefits too, right? Like the delivery of city services is probably going to be easier when there is more of a robust data collection um, approach. And I, I think really it's going to be very much the end of privacy to a certain extent, where if you have sensors at every point collecting information on how you're driving, where you're walking to, you know, what you're purchasing in stores, um, I think it's going to maybe even bring about kind of a flight of people away from cities again. Maybe the more privacy conscious individuals aren't going to want to live in an urban setting if they know that there's going to be a camera attached to a street light that's going to be taking your photo and cross-referencing it with, you know, databases. Lack of privacy is going to be the end of uh, urban environments. That's that's your hot take. No. For 2100. (laughs) No, actually. I think it's just going to lead to maybe a split in society because there's definitely, like, even today. Could could we get any more split? (laughs) Believe it or not, yeah. I mean, there's certain people that are more comfortable with surrendering their, their personal data than others, right? Some people don't really care about their Alexa system. I mean, I don't think you have an Alexa in here, Um, but I I did 23 and me and I know at least half the people that I tell, they're like, huh? Right. And you did that. Right. Like, so yeah, you do that. Some people are more comfortable with these sorts of channels where we know that at least I think everybody knows that Alexa is gathering information on you. It's, you know, keeping recordings of you and things like that. But for some people, the convenience of an Alexa at home as a smart assistant it outweighs the 
perils of like the privacy aspect of it. I think we're probably going to have the same thing for cities where it's going to be so convenient to live in a city that is fully integrated with sensors and data collection and sort of streamlined services that, okay, fine, they're collecting data, but life is going to be 25% more easier than if I was living in the countryside or something like that. Um, yeah. Do you think it's Orwellian? Yeah, I was thinking about that. Um, it can certainly be interpreted as Orwellian. And it's also, I mean, it's also kind of like how much do you trust the the people that have access to the data or at least the encryption, decryption capabilities, right? Like right now, everyone trusts Apple with their iPhones and right. iCloud, right? So if if you have a sort of technology or the responsible party is akin to Apple, you know, whether it's the local government or, or whomever, or maybe a, there's a private company that provides the service to local governments or something. Mm -hmm, but, mm -hmm. but if they have that same level of trust that we have now in Apple, you know, you could see that being a less Orwellian kind of situation or at least you don't feel like it's as orwellian even though it, it could it could very well be in practice um but it's easy to imagine you know abuses right of that privacy um i don't know uh i mean we we've we've seen places where they've installed like security cameras you know everywhere and um they've gotten some blowback right I can't remember the exact city that did that, but there was a lot of pushback. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know when you're when you're driving history and um, and everything is also. I mean, it's just yeah. yeah you just wonder. In, in, you just wonder if the future, like if it's inevitable that privacy is going to be like. It's it, it, you're just gonna have less and less privacy. Like I mean, you you right now maybe we're thinking more along the lines of in the next fifty years to hundred years. But imagine if we don't destroy ourselves, you know, in the next five hundred years. Mm -hmm. This is kind of a tangent, but like, what is privacy gonna look like? Like, is, is that word even gonna exist? <laughs> you know, at that point where your genetic information, like, surely, like you know, they're gonna have everyone's you know genetic information the dna um they're gonna have potentially access to your mind right? <laughs> like you know because there's, there's going to be a chip implant or something ai and you know ar and vr devices uh where we're essentially going to be you know you would think in 500 years if technology continues to advance the way it is you have quantum computing again if we don't destroy ourselves it seems inevitable. But I think that it's not even, we don't even have to think about 500 years out to start hitting some of like the moral ethical concerns associated with privacy and then tech adoption. Considering the fact that it's sort of almost accepted that your data is, is going to be harvested and collected by websites that you visit, the apps on your phone are going to be collecting data on you. Um, even at this point, like, when you're walking into a store, you're probably going to be a source of data collection and profiling to determine your shopping habits and things along those lines. I think all it's going to do, you know, as we're talking about the development of quote unquote smart cities, is just taking these maybe limited um, sort of pools of data collection we're agreeing to nowadays and just putting it onto a much more massive scale. And the irony, I think, of a lot of the criticisms that come with um, big government, right? Is that, oh, the government's going to be controlling our lives. It's going to be, you know, watching us and whatnot. That, that's kind of the, the, the fate that we're all sort of subscribing ourselves to by transferring everything almost to the private sector, where, you know, the, the greatest tool surveillance isn't, I mean, the NSA does 
shit ton of surveillance, but the iPhone, right? The iPhone is listening. It's, it's beaming in all the data of what you're browsing, who you're browsing it with. It's selling that data to, 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 to people, or at least the websites that you're accessing are selling data to, to, to commercial enterprises. So all, I mean, we're already living in it, right? And But what I'm, what I'm saying, though, is it's almost like in its infancy compared to... Yeah. I mean, if you just, yeah, you just imagine what's down the line. Like, it just... I mean, it, I guess, you know, to go back to this Orwellian kind of interpretation, like, it, it seems inevitable to, to be Orwellian. Um, the question is, are we going to be okay with it if it happens gradually? What's the... Lulled into it? Yeah, well, I mean, like, um, the, for the frog being boiled in a pot of water, like, doesn't yeah. even notice it. If it indeed... Probably. I mean, if it makes our... That, yeah. uh, that's conceivable to me. Yeah. Right. Because if it makes your life more convenient... Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. Well, tech dystopias, that's that's certainly a topic, <laughs> a topic for, for the future. Yeah. Yeah, privacy. Topic for the future. Privacy and tech dystopia. Yeah. All right. Um let's move on to the next point. How about authenticity? Yeah. I mean, we we talked about this uh earlier. I think really the question that I was getting to is what's the best way to promote some of the unique elements and unique culture that cities offer right if we discussed the development of suburbs as driven by cars and and car ownership and in those suburbs there's very seldom kind of a unique sense of place right it's kind of the whole analogy that i've heard before where you can be picked up in suburban oregon and dropped in suburban uh, new york and you probably wouldn't notice too many differences right you'd have like the same cream colored strip malls with the same businesses, the same parking lots, the same street lights. And if that's sort of the, 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 the reality as it stands is like a mass sprawl of just like mono culture and, and, and sort of similar identity. How do we combat that? Right. How do we highlight some of the unique facets that our communities have in the, in the U S do you have any thoughts on that? I, uh, I mean, Kind of like I said, like when you get rid of cars and you make, I mean, you have to start out with, you know, some areas in the city center that become more walking friendly. As the community builds, the desire for more local businesses, maybe novel architecture or local architecture starts to emerge. And then you don't have all the cream colored, you know, uh, buildings, all, all these businesses that look identical. Um, you don't have, you know, all the, the chain restaurants dominating it. Um, because, I don't know, I just think getting people together, it just drives, I think, maybe more creativity. Maybe that's part of the reason you see that urban environments, they tend to contain people that are more open. Now, maybe this is like a sampling bias where those are the people that tend to move into cities, but... They tend to have uh, uh, this this trait openness mm-hmm. at a much higher level, which which lends itself to higher creativity, mm-hmm. right? And so, therefore, due to maybe the people that gravitate or are shaped by the cities, w- w- whatever you want to say, um, that can end up producing more interesting businesses and architecture and environments. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of like a you know a different take on it, maybe from an individual human nature standpoint, how that can bleed into to the actual designs that we that we have. But it sounds like what you're almost talking about is is rebuilding to a certain extent, not really starting from scratch, but kind of changing the way that we think about development and letting the process happen gradually. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, it ha- I mean, it, it literally it couldn't happen. <laughs> like it, it just. Like there's no like economic or like workforce possibility, you, you know, like right. not, you can't just overnight reshape a city. Right. Right. So it has to happen gradually. Do you feel that authenticity is just a, is a gradual thing in general? Like the development of unique identity just happens over time. It might be. And, you know, uh, when you think about Rome, it's like it wasn't built in a day. It wasn't built in a day. Right. <laughs> and so. You look at some of these American cities and, you know, maybe right now it's kind of, again, it's in its Dallas, for example, it's in its infancy, but in a hundred years, in 200 years, in 500 years, 
again, if we don't, you know, if there's no existential crisis that occurs, uh, maybe what would like you, you just, you, you know, maybe I'm too optimistic, but you feel like it's going to have a pretty damn unique culture, right? You just feel like (laughs) that's potential. You feel like these, these big cities in the U S are going to develop into something, right? Very unique. To a certain extent, yes. Right. And, and I think, like, to your point, Dallas is, I mean, specifically Dallas is already evolving a lot, where even something is, like, physically present as the skyline changing with more buildings coming up, unique types of buildings, where there are certain buildings on the Dallas skyline that are uniquely identifiable to others, cities. And I think that maybe as thinking changes around again something we keep on coming back to the notion of car ownership and like what traffic does to to communities and and as maybe policy making shifts more towards developing more um organic ecosystems not like from a standpoint of like granola organic but like organic to in a sense of conducive towards individual like individual human life um yeah you do have the potential of dallas becoming uh maybe like a cultural center point as well, because, you know, it's, it's a city in Texas. Texas has unique history. Um, Dallas in itself is a hub for international um, populations because of its economy where it could really become in 500 years, a site that people visit, maybe just like they visit Rome now. Right. Can you imagine that? Yeah. Just, I don't know if Dallas is the one man. I don't know if it's a, they're gonna bury Joe Rogan. They're gonna. There's <laughs> people are gonna come all over the. Could you imagine like eight hundred years from now they just find his tomb? He's got a bunch of like. Yeah, instead of the tomb of Jesus, it's the, the tomb, tomb of Joe Rogan. It's like, oh, this must have been like a deity in their culture. Like, um, what, what, quickly he rises from the dead. What are they gonna bury him with? Like, fucking muscle t-shirts. <laughs> A bunch of fucking like elk meat. He's gonna be covered in alpha brain pills. <laughs> <laughs> uh, God, <laughs> that shit doesn't work. By the way, I got a free sample a few years back. What is it supposed to do? It's supposed to. It's a neurotropic or something. I don't it's know. Like it's supposed f- to make your mind, I guess, function better. But is this something he like pitches on a show? B vitamins. I think you do better than whatever the hell they came up with. Dude, that is so. Yeah. fucking crazy yeah, the sup- we gotta talk about supplements we do have to talk about supplements that's a fascinating one especially Alex Jones supplements are, are amazing the dude was selling iodine pills in preparation for a nuclear war yeah, there's worse things he sold <laughs> than that though. coffee enemas yeah. or the, the what was that toothpaste that silver toothpaste or some shit that cured COVID that's right yeah Dude, that is fascinating. It, it, to a certain degree, it's horrifying, but also part of me is that you got to respect the hustle. Like you're you're peddling silver toothpaste. Yeah, but what that says about you know people that listen to him. Yeah. And a certain percentage of the population, it's like yeah, you rather, I guess you rather not think about that. <laughs> but I mean, I I think there's definitely something there about just human behavior because every like influencer on every platform always hawks some sort of bullshit at you. Like some sort of like matcha tea, like cleanses and, and it's lucrative, man. If you've got an audience that big, you know, you got to sell something selling. I mean, yeah. Ad revenue is great, but yeah, you can make significantly more by selling shit. And that's what they do. Dude, we should start peddling um, some supplements. Can we get like uh, <laughs> some like aphrodisiacs, like crab skin or something to make you more like a, of a sexual beast? I'm sure we could put something together. Yeah. Yeah, the t-shirt business isn't doing too well these days. <sighs> Negative five t-shirts. Yeah. All right, so kind of just some concluding remarks here. I guess for me, you know, we, we've talked a lot about the issue of car-centric cities and the, the, the issues that car centrism poses to the well-being of, of society. I think at some point, you know, we have to come to grips with that, with, with the fact that we have to accept certain trade-offs, right? And like, right now, everyone having their own car is insanely convenient, but you can't let convenience be like the primary metric, right? And that, that's a great point, I think, for all 
considerations related to urban development is that so many things can be done in the name of convenience that might actually end up hurting us long term. Back to the conversation we were having over surrendering our data and, and the rise of smart cities and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So, so that's a big one. Like, look, we're going to lose some things by getting rid of cars or reducing car you you know re- reducing the the role of cars in our cities. But I think there's. There's surely there's a lot more to gain. I mean, surely the the system that we have in place, the setup that we have now, the layouts, these urban layouts. Again, like the contrast between visiting, you know, a place like Barcelona or Paris or wherever, you know, in Europe, the contrast is massive. And those are still somewhat car centric cities. Mm-hmm. And we can do better than those. We can. We absolutely can. But. I, I think if, if someone hasn't been outside of the States, like it's, it's very eye opening to see like, oh, there's there's really better ways that we can do this. Uh, and, and so I, I think we need a cultural shift. We need a shift in mindset. And I think as a parallel to that, ultimately speaking, what is actually going to drive us towards more logical and sustainable urban planning is in itself going to be convenience, because I think at, at this point, Car ownership still largely outweighs, you know, having to take the bus everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. But it's starting to get more and more frustrating and inconvenient for people, particularly as population centers grow. And if road systems weren't designed with a certain mm-hmm. population size in mind, you know, all I have to do is point to the traffic conditions in Houston and, and the DC metro area, where people are always talking about how shit it is to have to own a car and drive in these areas. And eventually, we're just going to hit a boiling point where it's going to be a lot more convenient to start investing resources into transit infrastructure that doesn't necessarily rely on a car. Um, so, convenience is kind of the double-edged sword, I think, in, in this sense. That's a very good point. Yeah, use it to our advantage. Now, do you think there's anything... We, we talked about all these issues that are present in kind of our our development models. We've talked about the overabundance of an over-reliance on car ownership. Do you think anything needs to be changed within our political system as a whole to allow for more of like a rational approach to development, urban development? Yeah, I think I, you need pol- more policies that promote mixed-use development. Um, you need policies that don't subsidize you know, oil and gas and like uh, the automobile industry, like the roads that we, you know, like we're all paying for these roads. It's, it's, it's I mean, to some extent, it's kind of like subsidizing the auto industry. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's certainly things that can be done politically. The only problem, of course, is politics as it is in the U.S., you know, it doesn't lend itself to long term solutions. And so. Maybe you're right. Maybe the inconvenience it has to get to a point where that is the driving force, right? Because it, it, it's it's always difficult to see politically like how we can achieve the changes that we want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's unfortunate. It's terrible. Like a depressing note to end on there. But um, I, I guess maybe you know if we are still thinking about driving forces of change, maybe we can think of economic forces. And the way I look at it is, if you can create a more walkable city that starts to develop its own unique culture, right, or, or a more unique culture, this can really invite a lot of tourism and make that city more. And, and you can use the money generated from tourism to continue to enhance the walkability of your city, etc. And it can kind of be this beautiful, vicious cycle. <laughs> Of like continuing to draw more people in and making the city more and more attractive, you know, with those funds that are generated. And so if we want to look at this from a purely capitalistic standpoint, and, you know, this is the economic system that we have, and we should be looking at it from that standpoint, right? Um, then there is an argument to be made about the, the, um, the capital incentives involved, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the the monetary incentives. So almost like a, a war between cities over right. there who should could be can... an arms race for more walkable cities. Interesting. Right? If if people, I mean, if if you're a city planner, if you're the mayor of a city, if you're thinking about how to make how to grow your city, make it more attractive, like there, what more could you do than this? Like this is the thing to do. 
um that's why people travel to europe right they want to they want to walk like let's let's do that to our cities there's yeah there's literally like uh yeah i don't know there's some investment that has to be made of course but surely it's going to pay itself off surely and i think that speaks to sort of maybe the more like approach to allow market forces take hold right to sort of if this is indeed what attracts residents and, and jobs to certain areas, then yeah, like the market will dictate that we need to have more walkable cities or more equi- equitably developed cities. My, my thought is that this is actually also something that needs to be accepted from like the political standpoint, from the public sector, right? That there needs to be, if we accept that some of the things we've discussed aren't acceptable, right? Um, we didn't really get to it too much, but homelessness, um, pollution, uh, economic inequities, right? Food deserts, all these things. If we collectively understand that these are negative elements of our society, that means we need to allocate resources to effectively combat them. And I think what really needs to happen is a declaration of a state of emergency, maybe at a federal level to recognize that our, our cities and our communities are suffering. And then there needs to be a channeling of resources to, to develop elements of more forward thinking and um, sustainable city models. And I think we saw some of that happen during the pandemic when the uh, federal government was allocating resources for cities to, first of all, pay their people when when, uh, tax revenue was low, but also to reinvest into transit infrastructure, to repave roads, uh, to, to build rail lines, things along those lines. So a combination of maybe the public and the private approach is, is the real solution we're, we're headed towards. Yeah, maybe if we stopped uh, focusing on cancel culture issues and <laughs> focused on this. Just, could... yeah, go argue about potholes, yeah. man. I'm sure MAGA Republicans <laughs> and Biden brand Democrats, whatever you call them, will probably agree that, you know, potholes kind of suck. Yeah. Yeah, maybe it's the uh, the thing to save democracy is urban planning. Urban planning will save democracy. Man, the best slogans. Yeah, t-shirt business is back on. Uh, baby, we're back. Consideration. <laughs> All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to this beautiful episode of Radius of Reason, and we'll be back again. We'll, we will be back again soon. Remix. See you later. Adios.